Um, it's going to be really hard to follow in the Bible because this is going to be an unusual sermon. I, I usually preach from a single text, but this is a, a, on a topic and going to range throughout the Bible. If you're the fastest flipper in the world, you can endeavor. Otherwise, I, I suggest following on the screen. Um, also, uh, I'm going to be heavily borrowing from a book called Peacemakers by a guy named Ken Sandy. Um, and so I just want to not pretend like I came up with all this on my own. I'm relying heavily on him and, and using him freely. Um, and uh, and this, is a, uh, this is what we call, we're taking a break from our Acts um, series uh, to do a Grace and Peace 101. That is, uh, th this is, this is a sermon that represents some of our core theology and how we want to live out life in community. Um, if I've qualified this enough now, we can, uh, we can pray together and, get, and begin. Lord Jesus, be with us as we open your word. Um, I pray that, that your word would empower uh, what I say so that we are transformed by your word this morning in a place we sorely need it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, one time, uh, my wife and I had a conflict. It was just the once. <laughs> Uh, joking, we, you know, it was a couple of weeks, but uh, there was this one that was especially bad. It was, it was, it was before we were married, actually, and um, and we were out to dinner with her friends and and like her sister. And I used to have this bad habit of, you know, we'd make jokes at her expense, and uh, and everybody laughed, and you know, but she's like, dude. <laughs> and so as we were we were headed home, uh, as we were leaving that night in the car, she said, you know, uh, you, really, you really had a lot of jokes at my expense. Um, I know that, that my family and friends sometimes do that. I, I'd appreciate it if you didn't do that. Right? I, feel, I feel very disrespected. I have permission to share this story, by the way, in case you're wondering. And, um, you know, th these are how conflicts begin. There's always an incident. This is the incident. I did something, and then, then there's the confrontation, right? She, she brings it up. This could be over right now, couldn't it? I could just say, fair point, you're right. Uh, I don't even know why I was doing it. It's a cheap laugh, and your, your feelings are far more important than getting a cheap laugh at your expense, however hilarious it might be. <laughs> I could have done that, but I didn't do that. Instead, I said something along the lines of, Oh, don't take yourself so seriously. I thought, she, I thought that that was reasonable. You know, clearly the other person is always the problem. And that, my friends, is the response where the actual conflict starts. So you got the incident, the thing that happens. You got the confrontation, but then there's the response to the confrontation. Is it going to turn it into a conflict or is it going to resolve it? My response clearly touched off, uh, you know, um, all kinds of explosions and fireworks because there's then the response to the response. And the response to the response is also an opportunity to get out of this thing, but usually it goes like this. I don't think you heard me the first time. I'm going to say it louder now. Do you hear me now? 
the response to the response to the response is also a key part of how these things develop. Because oftentimes, this is an opportunity to make it worse, which I did. And somehow blame shifted or tried the old switcheroo of, well, you're raising your voice at me. Who needs to apologize to who? I mean, you're really overreacting here. And before you know it, you have devolved into, an, uh, into a total war, right? It's not just about this anymore. You're pulling out things that happened a couple of years ago. Remember when you did this? Blah, right? And, and the evidence is marshaled, and both sides are trying to get the other to surrender. And sometimes when Sharon and I would have a conflict, especially early in our marriage, we'd look at each other and say, What's happening? How did we get here? How do we get out? And that's what we all want to know. When we start down these, these really, like, you can't just pretend like it didn't happen, can you? And you feel stuck. And, and there, there's, there's a couple of things that come very naturally to us broken people when we find ourselves in a conflict like that. And they're both wrong. The first one is peace-breaking. This is language right out of the book. It's peace-breaking. The, the strategy of peace-breaking is trying to get the other person to surrender. Either through, you're going to out-argue them. Anything they say, you're going to logically field-strip it and prove them wrong. And they're going to say, oh, <laughs> I didn't realize how dumb I was. Thank you so much. Anyone ever had that happen when you out-argued someone in a conflict that they said, you're right? <laughs> No, that's peace-breaking. It's trying to get the other person to surrender. And it gets extreme because it can go beyond trying to out-argue someone. It's all about leverage, you see. It's about finding a lever. Uh, maybe a threat. Oh, maybe, uh, maybe we don't need to see each other anymore. Of course, this is the path to abuse. Right? when you're trying to get someone to surrender through force. That's peace-breaking. Peace-breaking does not resolve a conflict, and it does not restore a relationship. It actually has more of a tendency to end a relationship, doesn't it? Now, there's another one, those of you who are the non-confrontational type, and it's called peace-faking. Peace-faking looks like, I'm sorry, okay? Have I done enough to just make this stop so we can move on and pretend it didn't happen? Can, can, we, can we sweep it under a rug? Ooh, I feel this subject coming close. I know this is a sore spot. I'm going to steer the conversation away. Some of you are seeing yourselves in that. The problem with peace faking is that it, uh, it's... Um, it keeps the peace for the moment, but it's kind of a bottle up and explode dynamic, right? You're gonna, you're gonna keep, bit. Look with me at Luke chapter 17, verses three through four. Jesus says this, so watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them, and if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, 
you must forgive them. The Greek's a little untranslated, undertranslated there. It's not an imperative, you must. It's actually a future, you will. That's an even stronger, you must. This is Jesus saying, hey, you will make peace. This is a very clear command, and this is just one scripture among many. We must make peace with one another. That doesn't mean beat someone into surrender. It doesn't mean pretend like everything's cool when it isn't, but when we have a conflict that we actually pursue the steps to make peace with one another. And at the outset, we might say, easy for Jesus to say. He was God. He was perfect. What right does he have to tell us? The gospel is that Jesus died to make peace with you and me. God himself, who did not wrong us, paid the price to reconcile and restore relationship with you and me. When we talk about being disciples of Christ, part and parcel with that is making peace with one another. You can either say, I want to be a disciple of Jesus. I can't complete this sentence because I realize it would be Yoda speak. <laughs> Basically, a, a disciple who will not make peace is a contradiction in terms. Okay? If we're going to say the gospel of Christ is the pattern of my life, well, what did, the gospel, what did Jesus do? He died to make peace with us. He did anything it took. He did not break peace. He did not fake peace. He made peace with us, so we must make peace with each other. Now, how do we do that? Well, those of you who like to take notes and like your outline in advance, here you go. How do we make peace? We trust God for victory. We repent and we restore. We trust God for victory. We repent and we restore. So first of all, we need to trust God for victory. Whose victory? First of all, God's victory. Look with me at John 15, 8. It says, This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. When we act like disciples of Jesus, God wins. God gets glory. So, first of all, we need to trust God for his victory. Second, we need to trust God for our victory. Look at Romans 8, 28. It says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So this is a really important principle for how we do everything as disciples, is that we think only the blessings, only the things we like, only the raise, only the promotion is God doing good to us. But even something as difficult and painful as conflict whether it's of the, I'm in good relationship with this person and just need to work it out, or I've got a 20-year conflict and a broken relationship with someone. Resolving conflict and working and, and walking as a disciple in the, in, and living out the gospel is a victory for us. So we need to trust God for his victory, our victory, and also their victory, the person with whom we're in conflict. Matthew 18, 15 says this, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. 
well, this is really different. When we get into, into a conflict, we think about winning it. How do I get them to apologize? You don't, if, <laughs> it is not our victory alone that we're looking for. We first ha- need to have the attitude of the heart. We need to trust God for God's victory, for their victory, and our victory. It's not I win, you lose. It's you win, I win, God wins. That's the goal. A few years ago, I walked with a person who was running away from their church community because uh, they had had a moral failure with someone who was on staff there, and this person was married. And this person's plan was simply to let the secret die there. She didn't want to bring it up. She didn't want to confront it. She didn't want to resolve it because she saw that it would, it would destroy the community. It, w- it would blow up the church. It would blow up this person's marriage. It, it, w- it, would, it, would, it, would, it would be disastrous. Everybody would lose. Now you see, she thought that she was in control of the situation. She was not trusting God. Like Her plan was to live the rest of her life with a terrible secret that's going to eat her soul and the other person too. So I said, okay, maybe all that will happen. Maybe it will be an absolute conflagration of the entire church and the, the guy's marriage or whatever. But why don't we actually trust God and just obey Jesus and try and make peace here? And so she went to the person. They repented and confessed in their community and she wasn't shunned. The elders took control of the situation. She was, they put her on a path to restoration in the community. The, the person with whom she had a moral failure had reconciliation in their marriage. And by the way, it probably wasn't doing that good in the first place, right? And God was glorified by how everybody conducted themselves. And she did not have to live with a secret that's going to be like lead in her soul. Who won? She won. The other person won. And God won. How we handle conflict demonstrates what we think of God. If we're going in self-protected, I need to protect myself from this person. Instead of trusting God for victory, it shows that we think we need to get our own back and we can't trust God to get it. If we're going into a conflict with the attitude, "Ah, how do I win? Or how do I make it go away? That's the wrong question. It's saying, how can God get glory? How can this relationship be restored? How can I have peace and forgiveness? Once we trust God, though, what do we do next? Well, The next thing we do is going to sound wrong, but it's right. Before you go and deal with the conflict, you trust God, and then you need to repent. Repent is a Bible word for recognizing that you are wrong, and you need to go the other way, right? I'm doing the wrong thing. I need to ask forgiveness and and change this. That's repentance. And you might be saying, wait, what? But what? Why do I have to repent when they're wrong? (laughs) Right? 
Because that's what we all think. Wait, me repent? No, they repent. Yes, repent. I'm hoping my spouse hears this. Hears this. They need to repent. Hope you hear it. Here's the reason. Now, I've never played basketball with any of you, right? That's probably for the best. JD, it might have happened, right? I think so. I'm kind of a different person. Um, I, it's bad. Like, I, 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 a change comes over me, and I am known to throw elbows, knock people on the ground. Uh, you know, if someone sets a pick on me, I'm going to make sure they get hurt, not me. It's terrible. I don't defend it. But here's what happens. If a ball goes loose, I have literally pushed a teenager to the floor to get the loose ball. I'm not kidding. <laughs> and uh, and if, that, if someone else grabs a loose ball that I'm grabbing, you know what happens? This is, it happens. You can see this at pickup games all over the place. Is Jordan the same way? Yeah, he is, isn't he? Yeah. Uh, it's like two rabid wolverines going after a pork chop, right? Like just going nuts for this basketball. Now, every once in a while, because, you know, when you just play pickup, you don't always know who your teammates are. Sometimes you'll, you'll be fighting over the ball and someone will be like, same team. And you realize you're fighting over the ball with someone on the same team as you. And you kind of look dumb, right? What are we doing? We're on the same team. There's no reason to fight over this ball. If you enter into conflict and you believe yourself to be on team right and them to be on team wrong, guess what you got? You got a loose ball. You're gonna fight over who's right and who's wrong. If you repent, if you say, you know what, I'm in the wrong, and you enter into a conflict on team wrong, along with them, it's same team. There's no reason to fight over this who's right, who's wrong ball. This is really, really crucial of why we need to repent before we seek to resolve a conflict. So when do we need to repent? We need to repent before you call someone else to repentance. Matthew 7, 3 through 4 says this, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? Jesus is saying before you can go to resolve a conflict, before you can go to confront someone, and, and you need to, you first need to deal with your own responsibility in the situation. You first need to take ownership of what you've done, and not in a manipulative way. I realize that I've done wrong too. Let's get on to you. It needs to be for real. Okay, so we repent before we call someone to repentance. We repent when we are called to repentance. Proverbs 9, 7 through 9 says this, Whoever corrects a mocker invites insults. Whoever rebukes the wicked incurs abuse. Do not rebuke mockers or they will hate you. Now in wisdom literature, to be called wicked or a mocker is someone who just doesn't get it, spiritually doesn't get it. No use talking to them. They're too spiritually thick-headed. And then look what it says now. Rebuke the wise, and they will love you. Instruct the wise, and they will be wiser still. Teach the righteous, and they will add to their learning. We've all had that experience. You know, you, you bring something up to someone, and they aren't hearing it. Right? Do you want to be that person? 
Does your opinion say, oh, well, they're probably right because they're refusing to apologize and defending everything they do. No, you're saying this makes it impossible to be in relationship. When someone listens to you and says, you know what? I was in the wrong. What happens to your opinion of them? You gain respect, don't you? Here we are defending our righteousness like it's something that even exists. And instead, we need to be quick to repent when we're called to repentance. We, we not only need to repent before we, we go to someone else and when we're called to repentance, but even when we're not called. Matthew 5, 23 through 24 says this. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Repentance is, like we think of it as sometimes like one time in your life, you have a huge revelation, the fireworks go off, oh, I repent, right? Or maybe three times in your life at the most. Otherwise, what are you doing? <laughs> but repentance is not like an occasional thing. It, it's, it's brushing your teeth as a Christian. It's taking out the garbage. It's something you need to do all the time. Being a disciple of Christ is cultivating a heart of repentance. Not that you're one who doesn't listen. Not that you're one who is going into a conflict trying to win it. Instead, it will make you able to resolve a conflict if you go in with true repentance. Most of us have heard of the golden rule, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. Do you guys know what the golden result is? You ever heard of this? The golden result is that people will treat you how, how you treat them. If you enter conflict trying to win, they're going to try to win. If you enter conflict asking for forgiveness in humility, so will they. And that scares us. Wait, I'm supposed to go in defenseless? What if they don't repent? Right? I would refer you back to step one, trust God. Okay, God is in control of the outcome, not us. But we must make peace. And, and how do we make peace? First, we trust God for victory. Second, we repent, and, and then uh, we need to restore. This is the part where we actually go to someone and bring up the thing that we're afraid to bring up and seek to make peace. Now, how do we restore? First of all, we need to restore wisely. Proverbs 10:12 says this, Hatred stirs up conflict, but love covers over all wrongs. Some translations say rightly it covers over a multitude of wrongs. The idea being some conflicts are not ones that you should bring up. Like we offend each other. We do little things all of the time. And having the wisdom to know which is a conflict that I need to confront and which is a conflict I can cover over in love. That is part of learning wisdom, and we'll get to kind of like some guidelines for when do, when do I go to someone? Because Matt, there's several things I can talk to you about right now. <laughs> I don't count in this. I'm just the preacher. I'm <laughs> okay, so we restore wisely. We also restore 
hopefully. 1 Corinthians 1, through, 1, 4 through 5. Paul says this, I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. Now, those of you who were here for our 1 Corinthians series, what was the church at Corinth like? Tire fire, basically, right? Could we call it the worst church that's ever existed, the m most immature? I think that that'd be fine. They, they, they were truly horrific. What's Paul? Like, look, at, look at how Paul's talking about them. You've been enriched in every way. All knowledge. I thank God because of his grace to you. It, just reading that, you're like, oh, this is a pretty good church. What, what's Paul doing? He's leading with hope. He's about to kick their collective spiritual heads in, but he leads with hope. He, he says, I know you're going to hear this. When we enter into conflict with despair, they're not going to hear it anyway. It, 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 we're defeated before we try. So we need to restore wisely, hopefully, and then gently. Galatians 6.1 says this, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently, but watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Now, what's Paul talking about there? What's the temptation of restoring some, of, of, of confronting somebody? Is it like they're defrauding the poor and you'll be tempted to defraud the poor too? No. The temptation there is to self-righteousness. When you get to go confront someone who has sinned, there is a real danger that you enter into that resolution, to that rebuke, to that uh, attempt to restore self-righteously and ungraciously. A, a, a couple of years ago, I was at a gathering of pastors, and there was a guy who got up to preach, and um, preaching to other pastors is the worst thing to do, but... Uh, he did, and, um, and during this, I was trying to let it go, but during, during the sermon, he dropped two positive references to Confederate General Stonewall Jackson. Okay, not as like, I, I know history well enough to know that Stonewall was a good, a good uh, cavalry commander. He was very brave. It wasn't that. It was like kind of holding up Stonewall as like the ideal Christian, and Here's the thing. Most of you guys know I'm, I'm Jewish, and in my experience, the people who are really into the Confederacy are not really into us. Um, and <laughs> not in any positive way, anyhow. <laughs> they do tend to focus on us. But uh, there was also a number of other, uh, you know, um, pastors there who, who I, I, I was guessing would be quite hurt. Um, and uh, my strategy was to write a furious letter to the organization <laughs> and, uh, and publicly body slam this dude to the best of my ability. But I, uh, I sent it to a colleague who was there, a, a friend named Rick Vasquez, who's a, a pastor. And I, I had him read it over to make sure I wasn't out of line. And, and Rick emailed me back, he's like, you know, I agree with everything you said, but did you go to him? I hadn't. Nope, 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 I didn't go to him. I didn't give him a chance. And so 
I, I sat down with the guy, the, the guy who preached the sermon, and explained to him, like, hey, here's how I experienced your sermon. Here's how a lot of other people, I'm sure, experienced your sermon. And as soon as I told him, his, he was aghast. He's like, really? I, I had no idea that, that it would be heard like that. Like, he was genuinely surprised. There was no self-defense. He apologized to everybody. He's like, man, I, I, that, that was my bad. I'm sorry. And, and you know, <laughs> instead of, I, if I had just gone in wisely, hopefully, gently in the first place, I wouldn't have gone through that. Well, maybe I learned something too, but, but you see, when we go to restore, it, 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 we're not looking for us to, to win or to slam somebody. Remember, we're, we're trusting God for victory. We're repenting ourselves, and then we look to restore wisely, hopefully, and gently. So the, the wisdom question, how do I know when I should rebuke somebody? You know, that's a Bible word, rebuke. It means to kind of bring something up to someone. Well, the, 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 um, one of the main things is, is God being dishonored, right? Is, is, is this person, like, publicly dishonoring God because of what they're doing? You know, some, some Christian uh, businesswoman who's, like, doing shady things and exploiting the poor, right? That is bringing disrepute on the name of God. That needs to be confronted. Is anyone being harmed, including you? Right? If what they're doing is harmful, uh, then that would be one that you need to, to go to someone on. Is, is what they're doing, or what they've done, making relationship with them, really strained and impossible? If any of those are true, and, and we could talk further about that, and maybe you will in your community groups, uh, you know, th like, the, this, this takes time to develop. When do I go someone? When do I go to someone and confront them? Uh, we need to learn wisdom there, but we also need to do it with hope and with gentleness. If you cannot go to someone with compassion and love, do not go yet. Go back to step two and repent. Okay, now this brings up a really crucial question because some of you guys... You have strained relationships, unresolved conflict with someone who has hurt you very deeply through abuse in your past. And you might be hearing me say that you need to let an abuser abuse you. This is a complicated question. Do you need to let abuser, an abuser abuse you? Do you need to make peace with someone who has destroyed your, your relationship with them through abuse? Well, I would say that you do need to make peace. Not just for them, but for you. It is often said that bitterness is the poison we drink hoping someone else dies. God does not want you and I to have hearts filling with resentment and bitterness and pain. If you think that all you need to do is cut off a relationship with an abuser, now that, that might be the right thing to do for a time. At some point, you've got to make peace with what happened. At some point, you've got to confront 
and forgive. Even if they can't hear it, even if they won't pick up the phone, we need to forgive. Because carrying that around, carrying that resentment, is going to affect you in every other relationship. Now, let's say you do make peace. Do you need to restore a normal relationship with someone who's abused you? The answer is no. You do not need to put an abuser in position to abuse again. If someone is struggling with alcohol, the loving thing to do is, it's not loving to say, here's a beer, right? Give them an opportunity and encouragement to engage in self-destructive behavior. So how do we make peace? Well, we trust God for victory. We repent and we restore because Jesus died to make peace with us. A beautiful example of this is from, uh, if you've ever read the book The Hiding Place by Corey Ten Boom. Anybody ever heard of Corey Ten Boom? Corey Ten Boom was a, a, a Dutch a uh, woman who, um, Christian, her and her, 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 um, her sister Betsy uh, and her father Casper, um, they hid Jews during the, the Holocaust in Amsterdam and were eventually found out. And they were all taken to Ravensbrück, uh, a concentration camp. And her father and her sister died in there. And Corey survived. And after the war, we're talking about 1945 after the war, Corey started traveling around Europe preaching the forgiveness of Christ, which she did to her last day. And there was one time when she was, she was, uh, she was speaking in Munich on the forgiveness of Christ. I mean, there was all kinds of horrors done during the Second World War, and, and she saw the only hope was what Je- that Jesus had died to save them and so they could forgive each other. And as she was speaking, she, she saw a heavy-set man in the front row wearing a long gray coat. And as soon as she saw him, she had a, a, a flashback while she was speaking to a big concrete room where she was being forced to walk in a line with all the other women, their dresses piled in the middle of the floor, all of them starving her sister's emaciated back, and this man standing there with a rifle watching them. He came up to her after she was done, and he said, he said, uh, you mentioned Ravensbrook. I was a guard at Ravensbrook. But I've come to know Jesus since then, and I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there. He says, but, sister, I need to hear it from your mouth too. Do you forgive me? And he held out his hand for her to take. And I, I turn it over. I turn it over to Corey Tenboom. And I stood there, I whose sins had every day to be forgiven and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. For I had to do it, I knew that. The message that God forgives is a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, 
neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion, I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so, woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Jesus died to make peace with us. We need to make peace with one another. Please pray with me. Jesus, I pray that you would set us free, that this bitterness, this unforgiveness that we hold on to, that these painful situations where there's unresolved conflict, that you would give us the grace to make peace and make peace as you instruct us, that we would trust you, that we would be repentant of heart, and that we would restore in a way that honors you. In Jesus' name we pray.